Hey there, everybody. Ted King here. Welcome to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. The late October 2022 edition. I don't often timestamp these episodes, or maybe I do, but that's unintentional. They're largely meant to be evergreen, to be enjoyed at any time. This episode is meant to be enjoyed at any time also. However, we are talking with the recent winner of the Arkansas High Country Race, a race that occurred starting October 8th, 2022. He set the record on the Southern Loop, the FKT. Folks, ladies and gentlemen, our guest is Jan Heine. Our esteemed guest, Jan is a friend. He is the president of Renee Hare's Cycles, which of course is a sponsor of mine. But frankly, ever since I first started talking to Jan many years ago, I realized that he is a mind meant for cycling. And he's someone I've actually wanted to have on the podcast for a number of years, regardless of the sponsorship. He's thinking on a different plane than most people, even within the sport of cycling. Check out his book, The All Road Revolution, which is incredibly well written and and frankly, I think is just as interesting to the non-cyclist as it is the tour pro. I think you'll get an idea of what I mean. I love having conversations with Jan, this one included. It's, it's, it's just, it is a blast to talk shop with Jan. So his recent victory seemed the perfect jump off point to have this particular conversation. Quick series of numbers for you from the race. 475 miles, 46 hours, 59 minutes was his unofficial time. He threw an Everest in there with almost 33,000 feet of climbing. Just watching and following along this year from behind the computer screen where I was, it was enough to make me want to go back the Arkansas high country. I loved following the race this year. I really enjoyed riding it at the time. I enjoyed riding with Jan this this late summer in which we rode the shadow of Mount Rainier. Check out my YouTube channel to see this video from riding in the Pacific Northwest with Jan. That was a fun training day for him and it was a great day for me. Lots of folks have reached out knowing that I had this connection with Jan and thinking that he would be a great guest on the episode, and I think he delivered today. It is an awesome one. My friends, I wanted to wrap up this intro real quick by telling you about why I started taking AG1 Biathletic Greens. Frankly, it was because a very good, a very trusted friend of mine told me a handful of times that he had been taking it for well over a year, and I should try the same. Okay, in one year, out the other. He then explained that it was something of a dietary insurance program to start his day. Because it's based entirely in real foods, it then delivers the long list of vitamins, minerals, probiotics, adaptogens that I would be looking for throughout the day anyway. Just by starting his day off with AG1, he has done that due diligence to get the nutrition he needs straight out of the gate. It's simple. Just a single scoop straight into water, shake it up and down the hatch. Bonus, they are NSF certified for cleanliness. They're even a climate neutral company. It took me a long time to try them out after I first heard of them. I only wish I had tried them sooner. It is awesome. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash tedking. Again, athleticgreens.com slash tedking. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. That's it. That's all. Folks, please enjoy this conversation with Jan Heine. Jan, uh, welcome to the show. And, and even more so, congratulations on winning and setting the FKT recently at the Arkansas High Country South Route. That is that is incredible. Well done. Thanks. Thanks. It was fun. Yeah, I would assume so. I'd hope so. Um let's see. Um where where do you suppose the Arkansas High Country race first hit your radar? I don't know. Maybe when you did it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I it had been sort of on and off the radar just because it existed and you read about it and it was on bikepacking.com. But then when you headed out there and 
I just thought, wow, that looks like a real fun, real intense race. And um, obviously you did the long course, which is a bit more than uh, I wanted to do, mm -hmm. um, especially since my specialty is sort of the 40 to 48 hour, uh -huh. you know, pairs, breast pairs, random neuring kind of approach. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, ever since I've been thinking, that'd right. be fun. So... So yeah, the follow-up question being, it's one thing to be aware of it and say, okay, that sounds like a fun idea, but then it's a different thing to say, okay, I actually want to approach it and try to try to give it a go in the race. Do you think it had an appeal initially because it it was something that you said, yeah, someday I could I could go after that? I think so. Well, the other thing is, you know, we develop our products here in the Cascade Mountains, but um, the world is a big place. So I love to ride in many different places. We went to Unbound XL this year mm -hmm. also to see what, you know, what conditions do our customers encounter there. Mm -hmm. And so Arkansas seemed like yet another sort of um, environment that, that I didn't have much experience with. And so it seemed um, seemed like a good idea to go there and see what works and what doesn't work. Sure, makes perfect sense. It, um, yeah, I think Arkansas, with all due respect, can be thought of as a flyover state. And now, thanks to what's happening in Northwest Arkansas with with the Walton family and in Bentonville and Fayetteville, especially, it is it is becoming a destination to ride. It's becoming a destination where companies are moving, where individuals are moving purely related to the bicycle um i read your write-up uh on on the uh renee air's journal where you talk about the course and how you discover that yeah you know it's called it is called the natural state there's something that is very natural about arkansas um my impression having done the race was that it is very rugged so without putting words in your mouth you rode 475 miles of northwest arkansas how would you describe the course it was such a mix, you know, part of it was like the first day was the most beautiful, like if there's a paradise of cycling, that would be it where the pavement was, you know, not too smooth, not too rough. There was no traffic. Uh, the roads sort of were curving through the hills. The gravel was nice. And whatever you felt like, you know, I could use some smoother stuff. It ended and there was a stretch of pavement. <laughs> and then in the night, it was the roughest I've ever encountered. I mean, it was mountain bike terrain. I walked up hills and I walked down hills. Mm -hmm. I usually don't like walking down hills. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was self-preservation, bike preservation, and just realizing you're not going to go much faster through these you know basically huge like rock gardens kind of things um i don't know whether you encountered the same thing um yeah i mean th there's a reason i use the word rugged to describe that's that's probably the first word that comes to mind yeah uh, and then the end between um little rock and um and uh hot springs mm -hmm. was extremely challenging it felt like i was going up and down the same mountain a hundred times yes only when i stopped and pulled out my cell phone and looked at the map i realized i'm actually making progress in the yep. right direction so yep. it felt like you know you're in this sort of purgatory or something mm -hmm. but it was beautiful riding i mean just climbing and descending climbing and descending in the forest and it was pitch dark and mm -hmm. uh it was fun yeah, it's so it is so varied. And I don't mean to say rugged in any sort of negative sense. It's it's challenging terrain. Um, yeah, you talk about having to walk up and down, and that is certainly a thing. And part of that, a big part part of that is self-preservation. What blew me away on the long course, especially, and I think probably you see virtually the same thing on 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 the shorter course. You do I felt like I saw a bit of every topography that we have across the country. For all intents and purposes, there were times I would felt like I was riding in New England. There were times that I felt like I was riding in the the Southern Appalachians. There were times I literally felt I was riding in the Rockies um, and then Pacific Northwest, California. So all places that I have been in this tiny little corner of the state, which is which is just kind of wild. Um, I had quite good weather. What was the weather like for your for your go? 
It was really good too. I mean, we had a bit of a headwind, uh, unfortunately, on the flat parts where you really feel it. Sure. Uh, <laughs> there was it was it was warm but not hot. It was cool, even chilly at night, but nothing that a wool jersey and leg warmers couldn't deal with. Mm -hmm. So I would say it was about perfect because obviously, if it gets really hot, you uh, just have to slow down again for self preservation. You can't burn through you know a bottle every half hour. Sure. Um, when the next season resupplies 10 hours away mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting that the time of year like i don't know what the optimal time is i know what jay pitterberry at one point said an fkt in the summer which i can't fathom just how hot it is but then that's balanced with much more sunlight so then yeah yeah this event takes place in in call it mid october this was early october i suppose uh, yeah, it was definitely half of the time was night. And that's, yeah. you know, it's a long time riding at night. Mm -hmm. And how about what was uh, what was your preparation like? So so be, to begin from the from a training side, what does that look like? Well, you know, it's uh, it's running a bike company during a challenging time. So training has been uh, a little bit limited, but, uh, you know, a lot of interval training a lot of uh just high intensity stuff to to get the speed up uh, -huh. uh interspersed with longer rides just to get the endurance obviously unbound excel was great training for this uh -huh. uh, <laughs> and um yeah preparation um use the same bike that mark used an unbound xl uh so that was relatively easy mm -hmm. just switched out slightly smaller gearing um and otherwise just pack food lots of food and how about I mean, diving into the specifics a little bit more, how frequently would you do, call it a long ride? Once a week, once a month? You know, the ideal situation would be once a week. Um, yep. The reality right. is <laughs> whenever I could, I would say about twice a month. Okay. Um, yeah. And is it, did you follow any training? plan or do you call it catch us yeah somewhat i mean you know within reason it's always you probably have the same thing sometimes with with little kids and stuff it's probably similar to running a business where sleeping or training are the the two choices and mm -hmm. it's hard to choose because you should do both mm -hmm. um yeah. and you know often it's like in the evening and i'm like okay i'm gonna train even though you know i need to sleep or i say okay i'm gonna go to bed because really training right now doesn't make any sense yeah yeah uh what what do you suppose i mean you and i rode uh around rainier i want to call that late august yeah. that was a big day i mean that was a lot of volume on the bike that was 10 hours yeah what is what is your idea of a long ride that's a long ride that is i agreed 10 hours i think anything double digit for sure is a long ride do you consider five hours a long ride no no i think it needs to be at least seven Okay. For me to be a long ride, just because otherwise, you know, I feel that um, like the fat burning and that kind of stuff is hard to train in shorter intervals because you're just riding slow. Mm -hmm. But you're not actually mimicking what you're doing on the in these races because in these races you're not riding slow you right. once told me that the final sprint at unbound feels like a sprint and then you look at the power numbers and <laughs> they're comical yeah so you know you can mimic that sprint by just riding slowly uh for an hour you know you really need to ride 10 hours and then sprint if yep. you want to if you wanted to train that that's a great point yeah, I mean, I, I, as events are getting longer and longer, and free time is getting more and more infrequent. Five hours used to be a that was sort of a cutoff. That means a long ride, or or. Well, how long does a Tour de France stage take? The, I mean, I, all over the map, anywhere from four hours to seven hours. But that's basically, you know, so you were training for something different, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. And, but I feel the longer distances have big pluses too for somebody like me because fitness isn't the only thing you know it's focus it's um it's endurance it's it's just loving your bike so that you can get on it quickly because the stops are probably more important than you're on the road speed mm -hmm. and you really calculate it all although i had some bad luck so actually i stopped a little more early on i lost my power pack it just flew out of my bag and I turned around i knew which bump it had fallen out of 
Uh-huh. And uh, I found the case on the road, and I thought, "Wow, this is so lucky!" Uh-huh. But when I picked it up, I realized it was awfully light. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> man! So presumably that had been lost even prior to that. Uh, probably after. Probably the case fell off first, and okay. then the power pack fell off half a mile later and bounced yeah. off the road into the woods. And the woods of Arkansas are very big. Yes. And finding a small black power pack. Funnily, even the 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 leader of the report course, Ernie Lechuga, also lost his power pack. Wow. And he had to go to, uh, he was lucky, he was near a bike store. So he called ahead and they charged one for him and he could get going. Wow. And then the guy who came placed second behind me found the power pack, not mine, on the road. So it seems like power packs, because they're so small and so heavy, yeah. are just the thing that bounces out of bags. Sure. Oh, that's funny. I was lucky that the third guy who came in after me when I was recharging my GPS and thinking, how am I going to finish this ride if every 10 hours I need to charge for three hours and there's not even every 10 hours a place to charge. Right, right. And so like the third guy said, how's it going? And I said, not so well. I lost my power pack. And he said, how about you take this one? I have to. That's incredible. And it's also, you know, it's just a symbol of the the spirit of these events, you know, um, that the guy who basically would pass me if he didn't hand me the power pack and might even finish first, Mm -hmm. um, hands me a power pack because he says, here, you know, you need this. And I don't want to win because you run out of power. Right. Yeah, that's really heartening. And I felt the whole event was like that. Everybody was so positive and mm-hmm. that was really fun. Yeah. How about, so we're talking about hardware, we're talking about power packs, batteries. We've talked about the physical training component. What what goes into the the preparation of the bicycle? You know, when you build your own bike, it's usually pretty reliable. Sure. I actually didn't <laughs> didn't do anything after Unbud XL. I didn't tighten any screws or anything. I just figured it was fine. Uh-huh. I changed the tires to extra lights uh, because I unbound we run endurance tires. Um, and I switched out the 42th chain ring of the one by to the 36. And that's pretty much it. I adjusted the brake pads. Perfect answer. Um so give me the thought process for tire choice, for example. Um, what goes into your choice of tires going into an area that you've never ridden before? That's a really tough one. And I'm not sure I chose the right tires because um, it's sort of like a game strat- game theory kind of thing, you know. Yep. Uh, the extra light certainly saved me time, you know, maybe half an hour to an hour over the course. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I did cut the sidewall on the really rough part. Mm-hmm. So that cost me 15 minutes or 10, maybe, not that much, you know, just stick a little little one of those glue thingies in there, those, those, those stickers, whatever, park mm-hmm. tool and put a new tube in. But uh, also, you know, obviously I didn't let it rip on the downhills quite as much as I would have otherwise, although that's not that much time, you know, on the downhills, you can't gain much. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, there's all this calculation, and especially with an area that you don't know about. I mean, you're asking people who know, I asked the organizer for some hints. I asked Haley Moore, who had ridden there. I asked you. Yep. You always say Endurance Plus because... <laughs> <laughs> because you're just uh you're just so fast you know that basically uh, there's a lot more stress on the tires also you were riding what 44s and i was riding 54 so that's yeah. again you know the bigger tires obviously help a lot in distributing stresses i think that's the that and the tire pressure are the two questions that are that really matter everything else is like whatever you know and obviously which food you bring in how much right well how about yeah let's jump into both of those how much effort or thought do you put into tire pressure in general and then on a bike that is more weighed down than your typical five-hour bike ride? Well, the weight doesn't really matter that much because I'm still a lot heavier than the food I carry. Um, But I think the tire pressure is the most important and most overlooked thing. You know, people worry about all kinds of stuff. But I would say 5 PSI make a huge difference. And obviously, you want to go low so that the bike floats over stuff, but not so low that you bang into every rock and, you know, your rim gets trashed or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the that's the hardest part, probably. Fortunately, the tire pressure is adjustable. You know, if you really find that you're too low, mm-hmm. you can always put a little more in. Do you, do you know the pressures that you're going to put in on any specific bike or tire or yeah. do you play it by are you 
How much? No, no, no. I know the pressures. I brought a pressure gauge, which is completely inaccurate. Yeah. So, um, but I know which pressure I'm shooting for. Uh-huh. You know, so this is this little, you know, Zephyl thing here. Actually, it's right here. Sure. And I'm shooting for 2.5 bar, which is not 2.5 bar at all. Yeah. But it's what I need. Right. It's right. actually more like 25 psi. That's funny. But to me, no, that's the one crucial thing is is the tire pressure to get that right. Yeah. Um, okay, let me look real quick at your stats here you got 474.95 miles i'll give you the benefit of the doubt and give you 475 40 hours 22 minutes moving time um this reads 47 hours 10 minutes of elapsed time do you think you had call it seven hours of of non-moving time I think Strava is a little bit um, counting all kinds of stuff as non-moving, like when you're moving slowly or stuff. Right. But definitely I had too much, you know, in an ideal situation, like during the Oregon Outback, I spent about 30 minutes on off the 25, uh, 26 hours that I was riding off the bike. That's um, and that's sort of the goal, you know, because obviously this time I slept for 15 minutes or at least closed my eyes. So that adds to it. Uh-huh. Um, but obviously I lost about an hour due to that charging issue, uh-huh. um, you know, or the, the, the stopping. I had a hamburger though. So I spent part of that hour well, but it doesn't take an hour to eat a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> um toward the end i was i was happy with my efficiency i think in the last 12 hours i stopped no more than like two minutes wow so um you know because we once calculated that if you are stopping for five minutes you need to ride the next 50 miles half a mile per hour faster to make it up right yeah remarkably that's not possible i mean i can't ride half a mile per hour faster right on this event, how many uh, planned stops did you have over 475 miles? I have my sheet somewhere, but uh, six maybe. Okay. And were those all refuel stops or general? Yeah, refuel stops. And then the the sleep stop was unplanned. Uh, Kuya, the second guy in the long course, passed me and... I realized I'm not riding well if he passes me like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I can't even hold his wheel. So I stopped for 15 minutes. Just there was a beautiful field, you know, sort of, as you say, looked like Vermont, mm-hmm. um, since all parts of the country are on that course. Mm-hmm. And it was 9.30 in the morning. So the dew had already burned off. And I just lay down and, you know, took off my shoes and set my alarm. And uh, 15 minutes later, I didn't actually fall asleep. But 15 minutes later, I went off and definitely my speed was way, way better. I probably recovered those 15 minutes within two hours. That's so wild. (laughs) Um, Now, you don't you don't win a race of this magnitude nor set the FKT on a fluke. Um, How much strategy did you have? Um, How much anticipation in in being successful that you have versus just going out and having a fun 475 mile ride well both you know i mean certainly it was fun i was a little bit surprised early on because i was off the front and um but you know ernie lechuga has a very distinct riding style he likes to climb very slowly and likes to descend very fast okay so (laughs) we were sort of yo-yoing a lot Uh Um, and then I think he sensed that Kuya was close behind or maybe he even saw him because suddenly his speed went up and I decided that my speed's not going up right now. Uh Um, uh, I think there's a, you know, definitely there's a lot of experience. I mean, sort of the, the randonneur events, 600 kilometers, which is about, you know, a little shorter than this, but similar magnitude is something that I, I really enjoy that's sort of an interesting challenge and have quite a bit of experience with. So, mm-hmm. for example, one thing you know that 50 hours you can do without sleeping. That's sort of the max. Any longer than that, you slow down so much you should sleep. Mm-hmm. And in this case, even there, you know, the 15 minutes were well spent, but you don't need you don't need a night's sleep basically until then. And that's also why I entered the short course or the, the south loop because um I don't have much experience with the really long stuff like the thousand miles and you know sleep strategies and carrying what to carry and so on is is not something that that i mean something i would love to explore but definitely this year i didn't have the 
the mental effort and the the training time, you know, because you need to train your sleep system to even right. to go out in the mountains before the race and not suddenly be out there and realize, oh, the zipper on my sleeping bag doesn't work or who knows what, you know. Big time. Yeah, those yeah. are critical things to test. You were just you've talked about Paris Breast Paris here. You're talking about Randon Ring. Um what I think PBP is about twelve hundred kilometers. Yeah. So actually oh, it's it's about 50 hours if you go really well. Okay. I mean, the really fast guys go even faster, but my best time was just under 50 hours. So it's comparable to the to the high country race. It's just different terrain. You know, it's all paved and, and not quite as hilly. It's hilly, but Arkansas yeah. is hillier. And is that, I mean, I, I, I might be asking a question that you've already answered. I assume that was something that is appealing, knowing that you're going to go out and challenge yourself for approximately 50 hours or less. Is that right? Yeah, because it's something you can really enjoy. I feel that, with the exception of Lael Wilcox, who can ride from Canada to Mexico on the Tour Divide and still smile at the end because she says, I'm having a great time. Yeah. Um, But most people I talk to say, it's hard. When I talk to you after the full course of the Arkansas High Country, you said it was hard. Yes. And the beauty of the short course is, yes, it was hard, but it was not painful mm-hmm. you know there was not i mean there was a time where i was a bit annoyed because the hills just didn't end but it wasn't something where it took me weeks to recover mentally and say i want to do this again basically the next day i thought okay when's next year right right well yeah and i remember reading that in your write-up uh there is the mental aspect and there's also the physical aspect where i had finger pain and toe pain and neck pain and all yeah. of these things that I, I forgot my gloves at yeah. the hotel. So I thought, okay, <laughs> I'm riding through some of the roughest country without gloves, but no big deal. I mean, of course, my hands were a little bit sore after that longer ride and so on, but yeah. you know, it's less than a week after and I'm basically fully recovered. That's outstanding. Uh, okay. Now let's, let's take an enormous step back prior to the Arkansas high country. I'm always interested in someone's entry into the sport of cycling. What What do you remember, let's say, about your first bicycle? The first bicycle was uneventful. You know, I had a bike like everybody else on the road and so on. But what I do remember is I lived in Germany and um, we lived on a route where the racers were training. So we had uh, by our house, especially on weekends, we had groups of five or six just you know pace lining by and mm. to me that you know whatever eight years old or so uh it was just so impressive you know these gleaming bikes and you know whirring like past and i just thought this is what i want to do mm-hmm. and so i think that's where the seed was set i always i mean all kids love cycling because it's it's freedom you can go places that you know further than two blocks right. um, that right. you can cover on foot so, but I think the 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 idea that that this this sort of effortless gliding along that I witnessed there um, is something that that really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And it, so you pursue cycling to a degree. I know you've you've done quite a bit of racing over the, your lifetime. Um, there was a period of time that you were not pursuing cycling as a career and and not necessarily from a racing standpoint what i'm dancing around is you current your jobs currently revolve around the sport of cycling uh yeah presumably that's a pretty conscientious choice to say okay i'm going down the field of geology but no i think cycling is something that's even more passion provoking of mine Uh, yeah it definitely um the passion was there i mean i raced during my all my college years um you know i up to to when i got my phd so that was really and it was really fun i really enjoyed that um i never was able to really commit the time to it that it required so like i could never join a big team because i couldn't race every weekend Mm -hmm. i was always more the privateer um who at the end you know was racing against uh against people preparing the tour de france and of course they were way faster (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but um yeah you know it's i think it's more what you once said is where you come to a fork in the road and you just decide which which course or which route you're going to take it's not really that you stand here and you say i'm going to go from here to there 
because you can't predict all the eventualities and stuff like that. There was more, the, the bike involvement came more through just riding. You know, we rode here in the Cascades and we discovered these gravel roads and nobody was making gravel tires back then. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to all these companies saying, can you make this stuff? And they said, no, there's no need. There's no demand. Nobody wants to ride gravel roads. And I said, well, I want to ride gravel roads and I'm sure other people do too. So yeah. uh, we had to make our own stuff because nobody else was doing it. And to some degree, that's still the case. You know, you look at my bike in Arkansas. One reason my hands don't hurt is that the handlebars are really shaped differently from modern handlebars. You know, when you ride the Tour de France, you don't touch the handlebars. You know, you're just basically guiding the bike, but any any shape would work because you're not putting weight on it. Mm-hmm. But if you're on the bike for 47 hours, that's a pretty special case that that I don't think the industry is really considering. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, you, you juggle a few jobs in the cycling world. You are the president of Renee Harris Cycles and editor-in-chief of Bicycle Quarterly. Yeah. Um, to answer, no, to ask a question that I'm often asked, and I feel like I have a good answer, but let's go straight to the source. Who is Renee Harris? Renee Harris was a, was a, he was actually an airplane machine shop guy who made prototype parts for airplanes and he decided just like i guess other people that uh, the bikes that he could buy were not quite what he needed and he said i have all this ex- expertise in making super light stuff because after all airplanes have to be light airplanes have to be strong airplanes have to be reliable you can't just stop in midair and fix some you know uh, adjust some bolts or stuff mm-hmm. so he made the uh, bike parts starting in 1938 and quickly gained the reputation for the best, the lightest. And then he started making complete bikes during the war, mostly, I think, because um, there were a lot of unemployed, um, very skilled craftsmen in, in Paris during the German occupation. And he gave them all work. And probably there weren't enough bikes to hang his parts off. So he uh, made bikes too. And they became the bikes the, that people rode in, you know, the gravel events of the time because back then if you went to the up the galibier or something it was all gravel they're wonderful photos and stuff mm-hmm. um he also you know had pros riding his frames of course usually repainted in other colors and and so on so he was he was really the inspiration he was of course very much involved with with pairs press pairs and things like that so as i got interested in the history of this uh of the sport of the of the rides these incredible rides these people did like the red Pyrenees, which goes from the atlantic coast to the mediterranean over what is it almost 500 miles and 18 mountain passes all the passes from the tour you probably know them all mm-hmm. uh doing it one in one stretch um in the 1950s you know people told me about it how they crested the tourmalet at midnight and there was nobody there and it was scary because there was so much noise from rocks falling and animals running around and i just thought i want to do this yeah you know and so basically what we now consider bike packing or, or adventure racing existed back then too just you didn't need to go off the page off the the beaten path because all the roads were gravel. It was all adventure, you know. Um, and so that's that's who Rene Ayers is. And obviously, we have benefited a lot from the experience from those years because, you know, all these old guys, I mean, these old guys who rode across the Tourmalet at midnight said, you should have seen our tires. We had these amazing tires. They were so big and you would think they would be slow, but they weren't slow at all. And I said, well, what do you mean? You know, we all know big tires are slow. Mm-hmm. They said, no, 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 no. You need to realize these were handmade tires and they were they were so fast, you wouldn't believe it. And I said, I need those tires. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's how we got into making tires because I thought, well, if they could do it in the 1950s, it must be possible today. And so we talked to all kinds of manufacturers and finally somebody said, yeah, sure, we can make anything, you know. And so that really was where the seed was planted for wider tires? Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, these guys obviously had experience because, you know, back then it was it was quite coveted, just like now, you know, an FKT. Uh-huh. Back then they called it the record, but it was the same thing, you know, whoever held the record for the that Red Pyrenees, that was, that was like having the FKT for... For for tour divide or something, right? So yeah, wild. Um, and how about <laughs> at what point do you decide that 
you should start a magazine. Well, because I had all these stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had talked to these guys and I thought, and they had photos. I'm just like, well, this is a story people want to know. Mm -hmm. And then as we started exploring the Cascades and you know, developing our own products and so on, it, it, there was sort of, there was a need to, to broadcast, you know, to, how to say, I don't want to say I'm a missionary, but, you know, once you discover something beautiful, you want to tell everybody about it. Mm -hmm. You know, just like now I want to tell everybody, you should go to Arkansas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? I agree. Um, and so that's, that's how it basically happened. It started as a hobby, basically. I was working as a technical writer for a lot of bike companies, um, doing catalogs, instructions, and so on, which also, of course, has helped hugely with establishing the company because I had all these connections and friends in the industry. So, you know, I can ask people for all kinds of advice very easily. Yep. That's fantastic. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, what I love about the magazine is that it is tangible. It's what everybody likes about paper media. Um, I mean, to, to be able to hold something and read something and feel something and see the, the passion in the stories and, and the imagery. Certainly, those. Are I think everything has its place. You know, there's yeah. certainly there's the 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 beauty of of hearing people on a podcast, which which I really appreciate. Uh -huh. um, but like you say, there's also the sitting down with a cup of tea far from your computer and just reading a magazine and and you know tuning into that and not not being tempted to click on something else or having little pings because an email came in or stuff, but just, yeah, you know, holding paper in your hand is, is, uh, is definitely something. It's sort of a little bit like going on a bike ride, you know, where you're also out of reach and put yourself on an airplane mode. And, you know, it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to answer anything right now. I'm just riding. Right. It's beautiful. So we've talked about all different aspects of gravel from original tourmalay gravel to an unbound XL to to Arkansas High Country. Um, we're in an interesting time in as as gravel becomes more and more competitive. What are your thoughts on the overarching concept of competitive gravel? You know, I think it's a big world. And what I really love about these events like Unbound is that you can rub shoulders with Peter Sagan, you know, if you yeah. enter the 100 miler. Literally. Try that, you know, show up to the Tour de France and say, hey, you know, I want to ride at least the first five miles with you guys out of town. Right. Uh, probably not. <laughs> um, so it's just the accessibility of it all is, is wonderful, I think. Um, the other surprising thing is that sometimes the favorites are not the ones who win. You know, beauty of gravel is that there's a lot of things involved that go beyond pure horsepower, especially on the long events, you know, where there's so much more than, you know, it's just like even equipment choice. I mean, I don't think anybody has ever lost to the front stage because they didn't choose the right equipment. You know, all the pro level equipment is good enough. Um, and it's all very similar, but then gravel, you know, you got the tire pressure wrong or you choose tires that are too narrow or something. You might as well find yourself standing by the roadside, you know, with the wheel and there's no, you know, motorcycle behind. I, I guess it's not Mavic anymore, but, you know, mm -hmm. um, that, that just hands you a wheel and pushes you so that you get going as quickly as possible. Right. So, um, you know, I think, um, I mean, some people may be upset because they used to win races and won't anymore. I mean, certainly if you show up to the, to the south loop of the Arkansas high country race, I'm not going to see much of you um but that's fine too you know i think um i think it's it's a big world out there and the the beauty of it is that one doesn't preclude the others you know i think that like the arkansas high country race once again showed very clearly that it's really a big tent i mean everybody was so friendly and everybody was getting cheered on and i mean the people still finishing now the the long course and the organizers out there congratulating them and so on, you know, very different from road racing when I was in Germany, where the organizers said, okay, first 10 people are through, everybody else needs to get off the road because we need to reopen the road for traffic. And there were people who were like, you know, half a mile from the finish in a 120 mile race who weren't allowed to finish because race is over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, I mean, I've been using that analogy 
often in my experience in gravel uh come to a road race your category five race and you're dropped on the first climb and you may as well go back to your car because you're not in the race you're not having fun you're not having the support whereas gravel it's whenever somebody is going to finish and you mean this quite literally i mean the race you finished what probably a week ago and there are yeah. people still finishing the long course and i'm following it on social media and it's awesome to see how many folks are coming out it's uh it is it is gravitational and it is fun and it is cool so it's also a real adventure i think that's something you know that um like when i was a teenager in europe the uh, dakar rally which back then went from paris to dakar with with cars was like this this dream of every well at least mine you know of just these people who went to the desert and some got lost and for a week you didn't know where they were and <laughs> you know this was before satellite phones and all kinds of stuff right um and to some degree it's a little bit like that where you know you're heading out into the unknown and you're you're pushing yourself um but it's not just about the horsepower it's about everything you know it's about planning it's about keeping your stops short it's about where to resupply mm-hmm. it's a lot of strategy involved so it's um it's a lot of fun yeah which makes me one of the questions i had i had thought of asking is what are your thoughts on the uci and gravel and i'm i'm perfectly fine with it and the uci gravel world champions just championship just happened and it showed to me what is not really a surprise which is the world tour cyclists are going to finish one through ten because they're they're simply faster um and and that is that is what they are you know they are the best athletes on earth at going uh on two wheels my point being everything you just said are the the they're tangible intangibles. It's that sense of adventure. It's the it's the taking care of yourself on the side of the road. It's it's the strategy that goes along in, into it. Whereas the UCI Gravel World Championships, I think we're still just a time trial, a, a, a mass start time trial. Um, I don't think strategy was as much at play. And if strategy was was at play, it was in the form of somebody like Matthew Vanderpool not chasing down one of his trade team teammates, even though they're racing for different teams at the World Championships uh, uh, because they're not <laughs> racing for the same nationality. So, yeah, it's all sorts of nuance. I think people. You no, know, I think I think the the World Championships. It's just like the Road World Championships. They're important, but they're not everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we always know that the, on the road, the world championships are sort of a race apart. Like whoever wins it is not necessarily the best rider. It's just, you know, there's a lot of luck involved, a lot of this and that. And like you say, also the trade team issues, you know, I mean, yeah. always, because in theory, yeah, one's race, racing on, I don't know, the Italian team and one on the Dutch team. But in practice, the rest of the year, they have to be on the same team. And <laughs> yeah, that's, that's um, exactly. you're not going to chase down your friend. Um, so I think, you know, I have no problem with the UCI having organizing world championships, but I also think that in the end, it's just one race among many. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. And it's cool because among those variety of races that we have talked about today, the overarching theme is gravel, but I would be hard pressed to see Peter Sagan showing up at, at Arkansas High Country. And if he did, I think it would only be positive. Um, yeah. And would he win? That's the other question. Probably not because there's a lot of experience you need, you know, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not as simple as, as just putting out the power, which is hugely helpful, but you know, probably Peter Sagan hasn't thought a lot about the sleep strategy and about what to carry for, you know, clothing. And so on. I mean, you talk to people like Lael Wilcox and she says, Oh, you know, I use a, for the for the really mountainous races, I use a um, down pants and down jacket for sleeping instead of a sleeping bag, because in the morning I can just get on the bike and ride in that until it warms up. Right. And you think, well, that's brilliant, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But where do you find a, a down pants that you can actually ride the bike? Yeah. In? Very <laughs> and that, All that kind of stuff. You know, there's a lot of things that go into that that. That aren't just as simple as, as showing up for for the gravel world championships where you know you could probably i mean looking at that course you could have probably done it on a road bike i yeah as many people did uh yeah 
and therefore to, to lead into a, another question I wanted to ask, when do you suppose the world tour teams are going to be riding 32 mil tires at a minimum? You know, our research says that beyond 25 millimeters, you don't gain any speed. So 25 is sort of the sweet spot because especially, you know, if you are, if you're a sprinter and you're winning a sprint by half a wheel, Mm-hmm. suddenly the wheel weight actually matters you know everybody thinks wheel weight matters and usually it doesn't but at the end of a 200 meter sprint with the lighter wheel you'll be what four inches ahead which is tiny mm-hmm. but you know as well as i do that four inches can be the difference between first and fourth right and you know so i think there isn't going to be a lot, as long as the roads are smooth, there isn't going to be a lot of gain from going much wider, just because wider tires are heavier by by definition. On the other hand, I did not regret one bit running 54s, which is the widest I can ride with road cranks mm-hmm. in the Arkansas High Country race, even though quite a bit of it was paved. Uh, but I was no slower on the pavement because for me, four inches at the end of a 200-meter sprint... <laughs> Make zero difference, yeah. you know. My time is not even counted in seconds, but in minutes. Right. Terrific answer. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. How about, do you notice, how much of a comfort difference do you notice going from, for example, a 25 to a 32? It's huge. Yeah. Because when you look at air volume, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it's probably 60% more air. Or even more. I mean, your 44s versus my 54s is twice as much air. So I had twice as much air in my tires in Arkansas than you did. That's huge. You know, this is just... And I'm wondering, yeah, so certainly over the course of a race that you're measuring in minutes, not milliseconds, comfort matters. I wonder if we'll ever get to a point where world tour racers in their 200 kilometer stages are saying, I need to be more comfortable at the end. That's a question for you because you've done that. Sure. And and in an, in a time that 28 were big and 23 to 25 were completely normal. And so it was unfathomable to ride anything larger than that. Um, I think since retiring, I've ridden a 28 on one occasion, and now I ride 32s exclusively as my my most minimal tire. Same um, here. I mean, my racing bike has 32s. Um, but on the other hand, you know, when you're really racing, you're putting out so much power that you're mostly hovering over the saddle. Mm-hmm. So it's, to me at least, it was a completely different feel when when I was really racing, especially when you're going well and winning, mm-hmm. um, I never felt discomfort. I mean, right. I rode like 150 mile races on 21 millimeter tires at 110 PSI. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't uncomfortable. I mean, maybe it was a little slower than 25s. Now we know that. And I regret now that I didn't know that then. Right. But from a comfort perspective, I think we over easily overestimate you know the the discomfort of racing which is not that much i mean the roads are usually smooth and you're just pushing so hard that you know the bike doesn't really you're you're like hovering over everything yeah yeah and then we because the classics are such a uh deviation from traditional roads i mean you've talked about smooth roads frequently and the, the classics are anything but yeah i wonder at what point if 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 a 32 will ever be standard there or 35 i mean i think i run 35 on one of my road bikes i think that would make more sense because um you know the other problem of course is and that's something you experience you can't run the tire pressures i'm running because you have too much power and so you would just bob like like a first generation mountain bike with full suspension <laughs> and you wouldn't be able to put the power down you know it's it's only because I'm a smooth rider who doesn't put out much power that, for example, in the Oregon Outback, I could run 19 PSI in my tires. It was it was great on the rough stuff because the bike just 
you know, went over things. Um, but if there was a sprint at the end, I wouldn't have contested it. You yeah. Know? <laughs> it would have been impossible. So Perry Roubaix, you think about it. Well, you need to be fast on the cobbles, but you also need to sprint in the velodrome. Yeah. And so it becomes a completely different question. And I think often when you talk to people who are only looking at the science, they look at it too simplistically. Yeah, sure, it would be faster if you rode 35s over the cobbles at, at whatever, let's say 40 PSI or so. Mm-hmm. But then you're in the velodrome on tires that have 40 PSI in them, and you know it's, it's not going to work. Yeah. So I think that's also one reason why I feel it's really important for me to do these events and not just sit here in the lab and test stuff because the stuff needs to work in the real world too yeah you know it's it's uh, i think that's that's uh, really important and you learn so much from that you learn so much from working with people with racers like you you know who just um bring a different perspective to things i like it well speaking of the lab we are here on a monday morning I don't want to take your too much of your time uh, so we can begin to wrap up, which we do so with three final questions, which are, what is your favorite place to ride a bike? What is the number one place you would like to ride a bike that you've never ridden? And with whom would you most enjoy a bike ride? Favorite place is hard. There's so many great places. Um, you mean apart from Arkansas? No, Apart from Arkansas <laughs> right now. No, that could be certainly on the list. Uh, Arkansas is definitely on the list. It was such a surprise. <clears throat> I love Japan. Yeah. The uh, mountain roads of Japan are just amazing. There's just so many roads. The terrain is so steep, um, but still so rideable. The roads are beautifully built. Mm-hmm. They even have mirrors in the tight corner, so you can see around the corner whether there's any traffic coming, which is a That's huge... Awesome. Like it's like why don't we do that everywhere? Yeah. Um, so I think that's one of the favorite places uh, for riding a bike, especially if you are on a on a road bike, because most of the roads there are paved, and you suddenly realize gravel is great, but you know pavement is great too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard, you know. Where would I love to ride a bike? I think Vermont. I've never ridden in Vermont. Perfect. Um, Consider an open invitation. Thanks. I've I've been to Vermont, and even then, I was thinking it would be great to ride here, mm-hmm. but I didn't have a bike. Um, and with whom to ride? That's a hard one too. I mean, I've been lucky to ride with with you and with Lael and with a lot of people who are truly inspirational. Um, just thinking, you know, I'd probably pick some really amazing pro tour rider, somebody like say Richie Port, mm-hmm. who's just so smooth on the bike. I just want to ride next to them and figure out what's their secret. Mm-hmm. How can they, you know, make this bike go so fast with without any movement except of their legs? And I think there's just such an elegance and beauty there that would be really fun to watch. That's beautiful. I like it. Um, well, I greatly appreciate your time. Um, oh it was fun thank you yeah and it's fun you know i heard you talk about arkansas and i heard annie davis and Haley moore and everybody and you know just going there it was it was just great to sort of see for myself what it was like and certainly it's it's, it's always fun you know you form this bond now ernie lechuga sent me a message saying you know now we're blood brothers because yeah. we've Written this event together, you know, <laughs> and it's just this. There's, there's these bonds that you form on the road that um, that are just so precious. Agreed. No, it's call it long distance event. There's something very, very special about it. That that yeah, I encourage everybody to try. But I certainly understand why lots of people might have a reservation in doing such a long ride. But hopefully, most can. Anyway. Uh, that's it. That's all. I thank you very much for for your time, Jan. Well, thank you, Ted. It was always fun. Bye.